Major funding for Telehel is provided by Dave's Archives. At Dave's Archives, they transfer, archive, and preserve classic commercials from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and share them with you, the YouTube-going public. They even have original shows such as Friday Night Live, which pops up, guess when? Everything about Dave's Archives can be found on their YouTube page. Just search Dave's Archives. By Retro Cirque on YouTube. Home to the Off-Air Extra, Off-Air Memories, Telemimes featuring the off-duty mime players, and of course, old compilations of commercials from the 80s to the 2000s. Check them out by searching Retro Cirque with a Q at the end on YouTube. And don't forget to check all of their socials as well. And by the continued financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash podcast including Mr. Cheeseball, Robert Marquez, Rick Kalaki Jr., and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Stay tuned after the feature for a special message. And now, our feature presentation. You know what we haven't done in a while? Take a look at TV Guide's list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. The fun Although the list was published 20 years ago, it's always an air quotes treat to revisit that list from time to time, either for a little inspiration or a little reevaluation. In the past, we've covered our fair share of entries that were perfectly justified in their position on the list. But there have also been some other times where we have to wonder if some of the items on the list really deserve to be there in the first place. Today, we're going to take a look at a show listed somewhere in the middle, number 33 to be exact, as we try to find out why a TV sitcom involving a questionable premise is on the list. Was it as bad as they said it was? Or was it there simply to fill up space? This is ABC, the one to turn to for comedy. An old-time cop meets a space-age cop, a robot. From the producers of Get Smart, Holmes and Yo-Yo. And now, in spite of popular demand, this is Telehell. In 1976, the ABC network was reaching the boiling point on its way to becoming the most watched network on television for the first time in its short history. Already armed with some of the most watched comedies of the previous 1975 season, ABC suddenly became a beacon for big ideas and potential eye candy. The network's 1976 season would accentuate that point by greenlighting the classic Charlie's Angels. The rest of their new offerings for that season, however, would run the gamut between one-season wonders and things that were, to say the least, borderline offensive. Saturday is the premiere of Mr. T and Tina. I don't care about the body temperature of governess. In the midst of the one-season wonders that would make its way to the alphabet net that year, one of those ideas, while sounding silly on paper, actually seemed promising. Stop me if you've heard this one. 
An old-time cop for a major metropolitan police force is getting too old for this shit, and every time he teams up with a new partner, the partner winds up getting injured on the job. Meanwhile, that same police force has acquired its latest weapon in the fight against crime. But it's not a traditional weapon like a gun or a tank. I smell a robot. <laughs> Prove to me you're not a robot. You know, that old story. Except this story actually predates one of the more famous variations. My program will not allow me to act against an officer of this company. Long before RoboCop was ever a gleam in Paul Verhoeven's bloodthirsty eyes, the writing team of Jack Scher and Lee Hewitt wanted to bring the notion of having a robot crime fighter to life. Much to some people's surprise, this was meant to be a comedy show. Much to the surprise of others, a TV studio actually put their money behind it. And even more surprising still, a TV network actually decided to greenlight the project. The studio that backed the production was Universal Television, and the network that greenlit it was ABC. Let us be the one! Once it was, Universal made sure that a premise this silly was equipped with the right people, one of whom actually had experience in working on a TV show that, from time to time, relied on a humanoid robot character that was largely invulnerable, yet somehow a lot more human in certain qualities to help save the day. Would you like to join Control? No, thank you. I just don't like violence. What would you like to do? I'd like to work for IBM. Oh, because of your scientific curiosity. No, it's a nice way to meet some intelligent machines. <laughs> a little while ago, we gave you a brief history of the TV classic, Get Smart. During which we gave credit to the show's creators and comedy legends, Mel Brooks and Buck Henry. But there was another name that we neglected to mention, not because he wasn't important, but because he was a part of the show largely as the series' original executive producer and showrunner. That being said, let me tell you a little about a man named Leonard B. Stern. Another one of those underappreciated types who practically wore a number of hats during the golden age of television. Stern was responsible for either writing, directing, producing, showrunning, or sometimes creating a number of classics from the 50s and 60s, including a chunk of the classic 39 episodes of The Honeymooners, and continuing to work with Jackie Gleason on his numerous variety shows. In the 60s, Stern would go on to create a number of memorable but short-lived sitcoms, like He and She, Run Buddy Run, and perhaps his biggest critical hit at the time. I'm Dickens, he's Fenster. Starring John Aston, Marty Ingalls, with Emmeline Henry, created and produced by Leonard Stern. By the 1970s, Stern was well-established as a showbiz veteran, and in perhaps the strangest piece of trivia you'll hear today, he also co-created the longtime kids' activity book known as Mad Libs. I know, I'm just as surprised as you are. Cut to 1976, when Universal Studios Television convinced Stern to lend his clout to this new sitcom about the robot detective. Stern said yes, and he became the show's executive producer. Now all that was left was to find somebody to play the robot, as well as his partner. Two textbook examples of durable character actors would take the lead, starting with the man who would play the old-school detective, the late Richard B. Schull, most famous for his work on the stage, but also appearing in movies such as Clute, Splash, House Sitter, and Private Parts, among others. Some of his TV roles include episodes of Love American Style, Good Times, The Rockford Files, and Heart to Heart. 
When describing what Shul was like both on camera and off, one of his co-stars once explained that, quote, he was a very funny actor and a unique man who lived in the 1940s. He bought 40s clothing, only used pen and ink, had his own railroad car and a 1949 Chevrolet. He truly lived in the past, end quote. Incidentally, that description came from none other than Shul's co-star on this series. Hi, I'm John Shuck. Daddy Warbucks of Annie here with Sandy at the North Shore Animal League in nearby Port Washington. Not unlike Richard B. Shul, John Shuck was, and still is as of this recording, somebody who has appeared in practically everything during a very lengthy career. From Klingon Ambassador Camrag in two Star Trek movies to the 1980s equivalent of Fred Gwynn on The Munsters Today. Incidentally, the roles that he would play most frequently throughout his career would be that of police, detective, or military figures. One of which was already on an existing TV show which, by sheer coincidence, was not only executive produced by Leonard Stern, but the creator of that show as well. In this case, Macmillan and Wife, where Shook had a recurring role as Detective Sergeant Charles Enright. So it only seemed natural that Shull and Shuck would be the ones selected to play old-timey detective Alexander Holmes and space-age robot detective Gregory Yoyanovich, or Yo-Yo for short, the root name being for the scientist who invented him. Finally, to make the initial 13-episode commitment look even more solid, Stern and Universal Television made sure that the show was lined top to bottom with strong writers and directors, including the underappreciated writing team of Arnold, Arnie, Sultan, and Earl Barrett, both of whom would later go on to develop Too Close for Comfort with Ted Knight in 1980. And just before he got famous for directing some of the greatest comedies of all time, the show even hired a young John Landis to co-write one of the episodes. After describing the players involved here, it's pretty easy to lull yourself into a false sense of security. On the one hand, the show had an ample amount of talent both in front of and behind the cameras. On the other hand, it did wind up on TV Guide's 50 worst TV shows of all time. On a mysterious third hand, that list was written 20 years ago and many things wound up emerging since then that could stand to replace a few of the shows on that list. On an even more mysterious fourth hand, maybe it's the notion of a robot detective in 1976 that made people have reservations about the show in the first place, even though the notion was already proven once before with Jaime on Get Smart. What could possibly be in this show that makes it worthy of scorn? We'll figure it out as we try not to short-circuit ourselves. After the break. This is Tobor. Tobor, the telesonic robot. Batteries not included. He's under your control. With a click from the telesonic commander. To circle. To proceed forward. To circle or to pick up the support module and return, all on your command. Tobor is robot spelled backwards. Tobor, the telesonic robot from Shopper. Stay tuned after the feature for a special message. This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan. The following is a paid advertisement by Sega of America. But it was supposed to be my show. Styling with Stella. Certain people around here aren't playing fair. Okay, I can deal with that. We need to be small about this. So let's vote on it. 
my show or their show. When you see the 800 number come up, call me and I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> but pay attention, boys. I don't give my number out to just anyone. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. September 25th, 1976. Jimmy Carter was over a month away from shocking the nation by being elected president. Dancing Queen by ABBA could not escape the top of the charts, no matter how hard other songs tried to dethrone it. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, we start things off with an action-packed title sequence that seems to mimic existing police dramas of the era, not unlike how Get Smart seemed to mimic the importance of working for a spy agency. The duo appears to be rushing from location to location, banks, stores, other places where crimes could be happening while making a fast and furious driving move or two, culminating with the two of them hightailing it to a gas station where both of them need to use the bathroom? Now, granted, this is a comedy show, and that is a pretty good gag on the surface, especially considering all the places they were rushing to in the credits. So maybe that's what they were really doing instead of fighting crimes. They were just looking for a pot to piss in. But here's where I'm confused. Even though it has not been established yet in the story, we already know that one of the two men is a robot. And we probably already knew that if we saw the various promos for the show that aired during the summer of 1976. But the point remains. How does a robot go to the bathroom? Can a robot go to the bathroom? Is it considered one of Isaac Asimov's lost rules for robotics that a robot should be able to go to the bathroom? Sir, are you aware that you're leaking coolant at an alarming rate? Uh, let me just patch you up with some hot resin. I think the leak's stopping itself. What sort of robot turns down a free blast of searing hot resin? And more importantly, why is this one detail sticking in my head when there's still 23 minutes of a 24-minute show to sit through? Thankfully, for the sake of avoiding a brain hemorrhage, we never have to wonder that ever again because that title sequence only aired during the show's pilot. In the subsequent shows that follow, it's replaced by various clips of upcoming episodes. And now that that Mobius strip is running fluidly through your head, we begin Act 1 with Holmes and one of his partners on the case when a series of car robberies are taking place. We also apologize in advance for the sound quality on this one because, unfortunately, the copy that we found at Hell's Gift Shop was thawed out from a frozen brick of jello. Industrial parcel delivery. What are they doing in this neighborhood? Take it easy, Mahoney. We just got rear-ended. Uh, 
police officer. Oh. Uh, may I see your driver's license? Oh, I don't have one. I'm new. <laughs> I see. I, I'm learning the proper way to park a car. This isn't it. <laughs> What follows is the first of a number of visually wacky stimuli that needs a description, as Holmes and his partner du jour chase after a moving truck while towing along the student driver. Which, I'll concede, is an okay visual gag. And thankfully, since it's only a 30-minute sitcom, the gag doesn't linger on for too long. As we approach a well-appointed home, and Holmes questions the lady of the home, followed immediately by visual gag number two. Do you have anything of exceptional value in the house? Art collection, jewelry, antiques? Well, we have a very valuable car, a Grambini. My husband's a collector. You don't think the prowler's in the garage? How does that door open? Remote control, it's on the dash. <laughs> This is followed immediately by cop show cliche number 568, the angry police chief who chews out the detective for not only botching the job, but for injuring yet another partner. I just don't believe it. That Grambini is worth over $100,000. I know, Harry. It's a collector's item. And you helped the thief collect it. Well, a fancy set of wheels like that won't be hard to find. Mahoney and I will have it back in a day, too. He won't be out of the hospital for weeks. I gotta go visit him. Don't! He's still got his gun. Things go wrong, Harry. It happens to the best of them. No, it just keeps happening to you. Followed by cliche number 568 and a half, the chief doing a variation on Munchausen syndrome by kindly reassuring Holmes that he's a good cop, even though he just put his ass through the ringer. Maybe the chief might work better through the psychology department. Afterwards, Holmes laments his troubles to the only female officer that the show could seem to be able to afford. Alex, how did it go? Well, it's hard to find the words. Terrible. Miserable. Awful. Those are three of them. As Holmes gives us visual gag number three in him accidentally rolling his necktie in a typewriter, remember those? The commissioner of the nondescript city's police department enters the chief's office to show off the department's latest weapon against crime. Your precinct has been selected to field test an experiment. We're going to give you a remarkable breakthrough in a new kind of law enforcement personnel. Good. How many men? One. One man. Detective Ivanovich. He's been specially prepared for this assignment. Tell me about yourself. Where have you been working? The 23rd Precinct. Which division? The Bunko Squad. How many years? Bunko Squad. Yes, the Bunko Squad. The Bunko Squad. Yes, the Bunko Squad. How many years? Bunko Squad. What's wrong, Doctor? It's a minor adjustment. And now I kind of feel stupid for wasting a $6 million man homage on my caveman episode as the scientist explains the how and why of our Jaime 2.0. He's a completely mobile computer. We're anxious to test him under actual field conditions. What if something goes wrong again, like that Bunko Squad thing? We anticipate some minor problems, but Yo-Yo is programmed to make note of any malfunction and report back to us at the end of each day. Of course he'll need a partner, Captain. Do you have anyone in mind? Is he indestructible? We think so. Send in Holmes. And thus, the prophecy of the show's title has been fulfilled. Holmes and Yo-Yo are now a team, but not without a factory-manufactured caveat about Yo-Yo's existence. How much can I tell Holmes? Nothing. This is top secret. I don't want our people worrying about being replaced by automation. Now, what if Holmes should find out? Well, you hope he won't. It would invalidate the test conditions. 
probably force us to scrap the program. Scrap the program? That's me! And that, to me anyway, is probably the stupidest part of the show. Yeah, stupider than the very notion that an android exists to help fight crime is not letting anybody know that the police have built an android that could fight crime. Granted, the scientists did bring up that if androids were more readily available, there's a chance that they could replace actual human beings, which, of course, would lead to lots and lots of this. Fight the guardians! They took your But you also gotta realize that this was 1976. Technology wasn't as sophisticated then as it is right now, where they actually have, honest to Satan, robot police dogs that are trying to help out their human counterparts. The fact that this kind of cliche is being used, in a comedy no less, just feels wasteful and derivative. And tangent over as Holmes formally meets Yo-Yo. Where you been working, Yo-Yo? 23rd Precinct. Here with the vision. The Bunko Squad? How long you been with them? The Bunko Squad? Yeah, how long you been with them? The Bunko Squad? Ooh, ooh, let me try, let me try. Um, what's another term for a police department's fraud division? The Bunko Squad. And what was the name of the 1950 movie starring Robert Sterling? The Bunko Squad. And since they specialize in fraud, who would you say took down Bernie Madoff in 2007? The Bunko Squad. And what do you think we should rename our eighth circle of hell if the opportunity ever arises? The Bunko Squad. And that's better than the comedy that we've seen here so far. As Holmes and Yo-Yo head for the scene of the crime, this time to ask the husband about his stolen wheels, as well as showing off visual gag number four. Yo-Yo malfunctioning every time somebody uses a remote control. Oh, this will only take a moment. And by the way, I'd like to introduce my partner, Detective Yo-Yo. Uh, we're not here to watch the game, Yo-Yo. Sorry. How do you do, Mr. Powers? We're in a timeout. A timeout already? Stafford has it there. Yo-Yo. <laughs> Mr. Powers, do you leave your keys in your car? No. And the thief must have hotwired it. You were right. Yo-Yo, you mind joining us? I can't believe it. They got a timeout, too. Mr. Powers, Oh, laugh track. You'll never cease to be a constant thorn in my side. More visual tomfoolery takes place when Holmes messes around with another remote. This time, the one that opens up the garage door. Only instead of Yo-Yo turning left and right, he's being flipped upside down. Ha ha, funny, wow. As we now try to figure out how the crime was actually pulled off. Alex, I know how the thief got in. He tore a shingle off of the roof and poked a hole in the ceiling. Then he lowered the magnet through the hole to that switch. He pulled up on the magnet? Yeah. I'm way ahead of you. Yeah, bitch! Magnets! Oh! Enter our accidental third co-star, a magnet, as well as our sixth visual gag. One that happens to be so visual that we've decided to use this scene as this week's promo clip on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash telehellpodcast. Partly because this scene is 90% dialogue free, and you kinda have to see it for yourself. Meanwhile, we return to police headquarters where the magnet hunch is paid off, and a juggalo can shed a tear of joy over the revelation. Your hunch was right. There is a car thief who uses magnets to gain illegal entry. Fucking magnets. How do they work? Last known employment, industrial parcel delivery, 185 Claremont. Industrial parcel delivery? I spotted one of their trucks just a couple of blocks away from Powers' house just before the Grambini was snatched. Alex, that's why we couldn't find the Grambini. Kincaid must have driven it right into the truck. The duo then heads down to the warehouse where the truck home spotted at the top of the show calls itself home. Police officers, you know the position. Spread them. What are you talking about? Spread them. 
is your mistake. This is King Cade. Listen, the cops are on to me. They were just here. Yeah, yeah, everything's all set. Except the price has just gone up. After a bit of a delayed reaction, the team figures out that the car wasn't just stolen whole, but actually taken apart piece by piece, and is en route to a collector in Germany. But as the duo try to stop the car parts from leaving the country, Yo-Yo employs some interrogation techniques. Police! Police! What do you want? What's in the box? I don't know. What's in the box? I don't know. What's in the box? I just work here. What's in the box? Okay, get off my back. What's in the box? Automobile box. What's in the box? I just told you. Oh, uh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Thankfully for this being the laid-back 1970s, it's not Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Largely because she was only four years old at the time, and that's a pretty sick visual. I'm sorry for putting that in your head. Instead, the boy's hunch pays off as we find the stolen car dismantled in the box. But also this. Yeah, that's right, we found the car. Alex, there's something I don't like. We also found the driver. Act two begins with the detectives putting things into perspective at a local diner, as well as yet another minute of visual gags. This time, involving mustard. Mustard? Don't let's be silly. Powers could have been working with Kincaid and arranged to have the car be stolen for the insurance money. Yeah. Reassemble it in Stuttgart and turn around and sell it. Make a double profit. Right. But to make it easy for Kincaid, he had to get his wife and the watchdog out of the house. It was Powers. Or it could have been Mrs. Powers. Or it could have been Mrs. Powers. Yeah, she could have easily planned the whole thing herself and taken the dog to the vet to establish her own alibi. Hey, Alex, you want half of my sandwich? Thanks. Why don't you try some on my blue plate? Thanks. And while you're continuing to wonder just exactly how a robot could eat, digest, and crap out food, no matter how much you need to suspend your disbelief, the detectives track down the alleged car thief in an effort to figure out the method to his madness. We'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Anybody put one of these together? I'm a design engineer. And without the manual, even I couldn't do it. That means anyone taking it apart would have to have the right manual. That's why you gave this book to Carl Kincaid. Kincaid? I don't know any Kincaid. This book proves that you and Carl Kincaid were working together. You gave Kincaid the book so that he could take the car apart. Then after you'd killed him, you took the book back so that you could put the car together. I don't know what you're talking about. Mr. Powers, our lab can scientifically prove that Carl Kincaid's fingerprints are on this manual. You're under arrest, Powers. Stay where you are. And while the thief makes off with the detective's car, the detectives decide to fight fire with fire by taking the custom car out on a standard police show car chase. Hey, we can't catch him in that! This is one of the fastest cars in the world! Zero to 150 in 10 seconds! And for the next two minutes, it's exactly that, give or take a sight gag or two. Whether it be constantly speeding right past the perp, trying to catch him while in reverse, or a number of other tricks that would make nine-year-old Vin Diesel change the channel in disgust, ultimately they catch up to the perp but not without Yo-Yo sustaining an injury that accidentally reveals his superfluously secret identity to Holmes. You're not a person. I'm a person. I'm just not like you. You're a bunch of parts, like the Grambini. And what are you, Alex? Just $5 worth of chemicals and a few gallons of water. And we're both programmed, Alex. Each in our own way. I like you. And I really like being your partner. Yo-Yo. You're losing a lot of... What are you losing a lot of? 
I know they're trying to establish some sort of emotional stakes here, but now that one guy knows that his partner is a robot, he's a robot! Of course he'll be fine once he's fixed up, especially since there's 12 more episodes of this crap to go! Not to take anything away from the scene, but the way Yo-Yo is carrying on, you'd think he was gunning for an Emmy the same way that The Mask did for a legally distinct version of the Oscar. Tell Tony Tim I won't be coming home this Christmas. You love me. You really love me. Fortunately, just as all seems hopeless, home spots a nearby garage where... And man, I wish I was kidding. A young Jay Leno is running the shop. He only has two words of dialogue in this pilot, but the jaw and the whine is unmistakable here. So, now that Holmes knows that his partner is a robot, he too has to keep things a secret. Why? Well, as a reminder... They took your job! They took your job! They took your job! your job! So, in the show's final minutes, Holmes establishes some ground rules. Well, they're gonna know anyway when you turn in your report and they scrap me. Who says? You mean... You're not going to tell them that you know that I'm a... Who knows what anybody really is? In my book, you got the makings of a good cop. That's what I put in my report. Thanks, Alex. Come on, I'll buy you a trick. And that was Holmes and Yo-Yo, which, as a reminder, was ranked number 33 on TV Guide's list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time... somehow. Because in spite of how dumb the premise was for 1976, we seem to have fallen once again into that trap of how this show's reputation for how bad it may be is actually kind of, sort of, unwarranted. So much so that in one of the more bizarre epilogues to a TV show that we've seen around here, even though Holmes and Yo-Yo didn't do too well in the States, it was by far one of the biggest shows ever to hit... France. Nous sommes très fiers de Yo-Yo. Nous l'avons appelé comme ça à cause de son créateur, Grégory Yoyonovitch. Pas un de nos collègues n'interroge un suspect de cette façon. Oui, je sais, mais chez, chez vous, les gars, il n'y a pas l'indice d'écoute. Alors, on l'a refait, prenez-vous place. I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how, but in the part of the world where they accept Jerry Lewis as a god, the fact that this show was a major hit over there explains a lot, and yet not enough at the same time. Still, though, we've got to do what we've got to do. And not unlike that time that we covered Good Grief, we're going to have to go through each of our nine circles one at a time just to be sure we didn't miss anything significant. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. We can rule out Limbo in this case because all 13 episodes of the show aired in spite of it getting dismantled from ABC's schedule in December of 1976, only for the final two episodes to air in August of 1977. Otherwise, nothing about this show really screams, kill it with fire, nor was there any drama of any kind behind the scenes that we know of that would mark it for treachery or greed. 
Looking quickly at the rest of the episodes, half of them seem to be your standard cop show fare, while the other half seems to be about how Yo-Yo copes with being a robot in the human world. Yes, the notion of a robot detective in 1976 did seem strange to 1976 TV audiences, but after watching all the shows, it was just another sitcom that made you go, eh. So now, we're really gonna have to split hairs on this one. With executive producer Leonard Stern at the helm, and his time being a showrunner on Get Smart coming into focus, one could say that Yo-Yo was a ripoff of Jaime. Except it kinda wasn't, since the character of Yo-Yo was its own thing. So we can rule out fraud and heresy. Even for a spoof on cop shows, though, there were no stories involving anybody hooking up, save for an episode where Yo-Yo and the female officer from earlier go undercover as a married couple to stop a perp. But since that's job-related, we can't mark it for lust. As far as I know, people actually liked the show in spite of its lack of success, so I can't picture any angry or wrathful letters coming to ABC either protesting the show or protesting its cancellation. That only leaves one circle, and perhaps the most obvious circle left to place judgment in. Violence. Granted, this was a sitcom, but it was a sitcom of a cop show. And cop shows, by nature, are pretty much designed to use or invoke violence to advance the plot. Unless, of course, you're Barney Miller, then it's just implied. See a guy get killed, the cops try to figure out who done it. Simple formula, tale as old as time. Take that same procedural plotline and put it into a comedy show, the results will be there, but far more diluted than a standard hour-long show. In this case, there were scenes where one of Holmes's partners were flung over the roof of a house with a garage door, as well as the scene where one of the car thieves was found packaged in a crate of car parts. It doesn't matter how rudimentary it is, the show still managed to give us a couple of acts of violence. Which, ladies and gentlemen, officially marks a new low score for us. Yay, I think? Holmes and Yo-Yo earns only one circle of telehell. It kind of feels meaningless to have a show check off just one circle, but maybe it's a testament as to just how far ahead of its time the show was in spite of its ranking on a list of bad TV shows that, in retrospect, is in desperate need of an upgrade of its own after 20 years. Granted, people in 1976 would rightfully scoff at a show with a premise like this, but given enough time to pass, the show would probably be one of those kinds that lasted three 10-episode seasons on basic cable at best. More importantly, the notion of a robotic cop would probably have worked out better as a drama or an action show anyway. My program will not allow me to act against an officer of this company. Yeah, 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 there's that, but that's the movies. And incidentally, a Canadian-made syndicated show in the 90s, and a couple of animated shows too. In terms of TV, though, 1976 would not be the last time that we'd see an android cop. One year later, the ABC network went back to the well with a much more dramatic future cop. This good-looking kid on my right, a rookie cop called Haven, he's the secret. He looks human, talks and acts human, but he's not. He's an android, a robot, the perfect cop, the cop of the future, a future cop. Although it was better in terms of quality, that show only lasted six episodes. 
Decades later, after the success of the RoboCop movies, NBC would then try its luck with a more slick and Dick Wolfed version of the story called Man and Machine. In the future, crime will be a plague, and cops will be almost human. Man and Machine, April 5th on NBC. Okay, I get it. Three lightning strikes because I couldn't trash this show well enough. Fair enough. The most recent example of a robot cop TV series was actually a show that put in the most effort in comparison. Fox's 2013 effort called Almost Human. Hey, no, wait. Uh, John Kinnick's is line. Uh, he does not wish to speak with you right now. He is waving his hands, gesturing no. Perhaps you're boring. So it's not like the notion of a robot being a cop was ever a bad idea, or even bad enough to be considered one of the worst TV shows of all time. Just like robots themselves, there had to be a number of prototypes made first, as well as bugs to report in beta testing. And hopefully one day, they'll have a top-of-the-line model that's ready to fight. Next time on Telehell, a tribute to something more annoying than nails on a chalkboard, chewing tinfoil, and Pauly Shore's movie catalog combined. We're gonna catch us a monster rock! A monster! Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash Podcast. And now, that sneak preview that we promised you. As we mentioned in our last episode, Up and Coming was an interview that I did with a show called TV Guidance Counselor, hosted by Ken Reed. Well, earlier this week, the show actually dropped, and he gave me the A-OK to present just a little bit of what it is that we talk about during the show. It's about 90 minutes long, so I'll give you about two minutes worth of a taste. This was a perfect show. Like, yeah, even what even what flaws that they had, even what, you know, minor little foibles that there could be to complain about, it paled in comparison to the overall quality. It felt like you were watching a play every week. Got to speak with a little bias because I've actually been to both Cheers bars when I lived in Massachusetts, although the one at Faneuil Hall, sadly, is no longer you with mean us. The fake but, cheers? <laughs> yeah, the fake cheers with the realistic yes, looking yes. set. <laughs> Let's 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 not mince words here, but but I I kind of feel like a special connection to Cheers just because again as cliche as it may sound 
The show itself is very much like a bar that you go to full of familiar faces. Yes. You see these familiar faces every week and you feel comforted by these faces, no matter how much the world is pounding down on you. And that's why I'm grateful. At least it's still available in reruns in digital form because you can just keep on. It feels very timeless. It doesn't feel super 80s, but but it also, to your point, was great from the pilot. And, you know, having two major characters essentially be recast over the years didn't affect the show negatively at all and in some ways improved arguably improved some things which is you know counter to every TV rule there is uh, it, it is a great show uh, also that night the family ties that's on is family ties retelling of a Christmas Carol which is a fun one there this week in television because we are the week before Christmas there's like 10 different retellings of a Christmas Carol uh, in various capacities oh, yeah. Um including, I think, the Hill Street Blues episode that night. Um, I would have watched Battle of the Network Stars just because it was such a treat to see that. It was, you know, it was it was like a, you know, Avengers Endgame for people now. <laughs> You're seeing just the, the all these famous TV stars, you know, tug of war in or whatever it was. Uh, in 84, there, I mean, this is just a, a killer cast. It would have just been such a such an unusual treat to see them paddle in in a pool. <laughs> I know you're dying of curiosity to find out what happened in the rest of the interview, so if you can, check out tvguidancecounselor.com or wherever you stream fine podcasts. We're episode number 513, and it was a really good show to do. I hope to get to do it again sometime soon. Okay, now you may fade out. (laughs) 